following message was recorded at Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org. This morning we'll be looking at uh, many verses, but primarily Luke chapter 9, uh, verses 18 to 22. And... um, if you're able this morning, if you would stand with me as we read God's Word, if you have a copy of it, or if not, it'll be up on the screen uh, over there. But it says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others said, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of the old had risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day will be raised. Maybe see it. Amen. Uh, It's interesting, there were two other Gospels written about this uh, incident. And the Apostle Matthew and the disciple Mark record this same story with some little subtle differences. So what I'd like to do this morning is uh, compare all three of them to kind of gather a complete picture. Uh, The first verses we'll be looking at is in Matthew chapter 16, verses uh, 13 to 23. And 13 starts with, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, and one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Pretty stern rebuke. In Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 33, it records that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on his way, he asked the disciples, Who do the people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, risen again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of man. Interesting three Gospels. You know, I, I love the Gospels. And when you take time to think through every Gospel, you get to understand exactly what took place. And when you do that, I believe you're, you're greatly blessed. And I find it fascinating to see the amazing things that happened with Jesus as he's guided by the Holy Spirit into situations which display the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Over and over again, he winds up doing something that the prophets had predicted the Messiah would do. And besides the Gospel of Luke, which we are presently studying, uh, as well as Matthew and Mark, they felt the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write down the same incident. And I'm very thankful because we have, uh, we've just reviewed this scripture, and they give us a more in-depth report with all three of them of what actually transpired. Now I have a question for you this morning. Have any of you have any questions or concerns of what you just read? No? It's all crystal clear? Okay, we'll see you next Sunday. (laughs) You know, at first, when I read it, I thought there were a few inconsistencies. Did you pick any of them up? Uh, Let me tell you what I thought. In Luke's version, he says that the Lord was praying alone, and his disciples joined him. And then he asked the question regarding who they thought he was. Mark tells us, because he was informed by Peter, that Jesus was traveling around a few towns around Caesarea Philippi, and he was on the road, and then he asked the question, so who's right? Well, the Word of God is perfect. And so the problem really lies with us, and our understanding, and not with Scripture. And I think when we slow down to the speed of life, and fully examine the Scripture, we'll fully understand how everything occurred how it actually occurred. You know, I like country music. I like both kinds, country and western. And uh, I believe that the singer uh, Willie Nelson can help us understand the circumstances of these passages. You see, Willie had a famous song, On the Road Again. And and Peter and Matthew were with our Lord, and uh, they had seen everything that just transpired with the feeding of the fishes. And, And in fact... As we're going to review very quickly, Peter was a key participant in everything that had happened. And so Jesus was on the road traveling with the disciples, and he had left his home base of uh, operations, which is around the town of Capernaum. And he went out to visit other towns, which in this case were near the area of Caesarea Philippi. I don't know if you can see that, but that red line there, that's Caesarea Philippi, and Capernaum is down here. It's about 25 miles. It's north of the uh, Sea of Galilee, and it's at the base of Mount Hermon. And the location is also, uh, I tried to get a picture, uh, a geographic one. It's one of the largest springs that feeds the Jordan River. So there was this abundant water supply, which made the area very fertile, and it was attractive for religious worship. People would come out to the plains. And this was the area where Jesus and his disciples had camped out. And, And hopefully we'll come to understand how the communication between Peter and Jesus and the other apostles, but especially Peter, what it exactly meant. 
along this roadside, there was this perfect camping site. And there was a freshwater spring that runs below a rocky cliff. It's a, there's the fertile plain, and then there's rocks, cliffs. And at one time, Jesus walks away, and he walks away alone, and he goes there to spend time in prayer with his father. The disciples, however, they didn't give him much time alone because they came right up to where it was at. And verse 18 says, And it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. Now Jesus wasn't upset that his guys weren't giving him time to pray by himself. He took it an opportunity to add a few repetitions to their personal training, if you will. He asked them what was being said about him. And answers came shooting out from the group. Some say you're John the Baptist, uh, come back from the dead. And some said you're Elijah, and some said you're prophets. And the others joined into the conversation and mentioning how they had heard other people identifying Jesus with specific prophets. So Jesus knows how to cut to the chase. He goes right to the crux. He asks, but who do you guys say I am? Who do you think I am? Now, Peter, ever impetuous Peter, he, you ever see that show, Welcome Back, Cotter? Horshack? Ooh, 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 Mr. Cotter, Mr. Cotter. I kind of see Peter as that kind of guy in this case. He said, he wastes no time in responding, and he boldly declares, You are God's promised holy anointed one. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I need to add some comments which might cause some people a little bit of concern. Because we've read Luke and we've listened to Matthew and Mark's write-up. So let me ask you this. Which writer gives the Lord's comments to Peter in more detail that he proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah? Anybody have a guess? Matthew. Matthew. Very good, Alex. My belief is the answer is Matthew. And now you might be asking yourself, so what's the big deal? I believe that that fact is greatly significant. I want to give you a little historical perspective. You see, over 400 years in the future from this event, the church had grown and was guided by three bishops who were located in Jerusalem, Rome, and Constantinople. And many of the leaders of these churches suffered martyrdom. Well, this guy, the Roman Emperor Constantine, he changes everything. He believes that Jesus Christ had helped him win a major battle, a major war, and in appreciation, he declares that Christianity is going to be the formal religion of the world. The Roman Empire was the world at that time. So he called the church leaders to Rome, and he declares himself the title Pontificus Maximus. That means the highest priest of Rome in the, in the Roman religion, and he was also the head of the College of Pontiffs, if you will. He was essentially the chief administrator of religious affairs. He regulated the conduct of religious ceremonies. He was the one that went out and consecrated temples, other holy places, and he controlled the calendar. Pretty powerful guy. So during this time in the empire, and until Christianity became firmly established, the emperor, Constantine, he was designated the Pontific Maximus. And ultimately... Constantine decided to move his headquarters to Constantinople and left the western section of the the empire to the bishops of Rome. 
So suddenly, the church leader not only took over supremacy over all Christianity, but he took on the title of Pontificus Maximus. Not only did he do that, but he became the secular leader of the western portion of the Roman Empire. And it was actually kind of a sleight of hand uh, movement, because the Roman leader developed from Matthew's written write-up of the Lord's word to Peter, that those words gave him the official appointment of supreme leader. You might say, how? Well, in Matthew, he says in verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and wherever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. What the Constantine basically does here is he develops this term called apostolic secession. And that means he, he points to Matthew's verses and he declares that Peter is the first head of the church. And he had all his assistants go back, all the clergymen, and they put a list of all the prior bishops of Rome. And so he puts together this list of secession. And he names Peter the first pope. And just so happens he names the bishop of Rome as his successors. It's an interesting, though it's an interesting historical fact, you know, I'm not Catholic bashing. I grew up Roman Catholic. I probably would have been a priest until I turned 16 and realized girls were pretty cool to hang around. Uh, But, you know, sometimes it amazes me how organized religions kind of keep some things in the dark. In my reading, and my understanding of Scripture leads me to believe that Peter was not the first leader in the church. When you read the book of Acts, you're going to find out that James was the first leader. He was the head of the Jerusalem church. He was the principal authority at the Council of Jerusalem. Also an interesting fact is when, before Peter even visited Rome, there was already a Christian church there. There was already Christian leaders. Remember one of the books in the New Testament, the book of Romans? Here the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, hoping and praying that our Lord will give him the opportunity to visit Rome. Paul got there, and he was there years before Peter even came into the city. Another thing I find interesting is that uh, if Jesus appointed Peter as the head of the church, then how come only Matthew records that in the Lord's words? Wouldn't you think, you know, Peter's the impetuous Horshack guy. Uh, don't you think he would advise Mark what to write down in, in his gospel and specifically make a comment of his appointment by the Lord? I can almost see Peter saying this. Hey, Mark, don't forget to write down that the Lord at Caesarea Philippi made me the first pope. Why not? No, what we find is as we read Peter wanted to distance himself from what the Lord said to him a little bit later. In verse 23, he turns to Peter and says, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. You see, when they go back to the area around that rocky cliff in Caesarea, Jesus responded to Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, the appointed one. He told Peter, Upon this rock, 
Now, our Lord was not going to build a physical church on the rocky cliffs of Caesarea Philippi. He wasn't, or, or depending upon Peter's strong and bold confession of the Lord's identity. The whole nation of believers that Christ was going to have would be established. That's called the Christian church. Jesus didn't say, thou art Peter. Then look around at all the other apostles while he had his arm around Peter and say, hey, you know what? This is my old buddy Peter. And uh, he's my rock. And he's the guy that I'm going to build my church on. He didn't do that. Scripture doesn't report that. So that's kind of an important fact there. But you also have to find, what I find interesting is the comment about Jesus' remarks about binding and loosing. In verse 19 it says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So I'm saying to myself, what's going on when you're talking about binding and loosing? What, what's, what's important about that? Well, the first thing that I came up with is when you think about binding, that's when you kind of tie someone up and hold them captive. You know, you tie their hands behind their back or in front. In this instance, however, it's interesting that when you share the good news of Jesus Christ, you know that when the person receives Jesus, he's set free from their sins. And he's untied from sin. You agree with that? Yeah? 50-50? Okay. (laughs) But do you also realize that you also bind and seal up that person. When a person comes to the Lord, they are then and forever bound to him. What about the, there's a great verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse, uh, verse 8. It says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. Now that's the kind of binding that's really great. But going back to our text It says, and he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Have you all heard the the old saying, pride comes before the fall? I think Peter, at this point, is kind of puffed up. He's feeling pretty good about himself. And I could just say, Peter saying to himself, hey guys, did you just hear what the master said about me? Peter might have even said, you know, I got my little personal recorder here and let me play it back. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. You know. <laughs> did, he's probably saying, did you guys catch that? Jesus is letting all of you know that the Father speaks to me. And Peter might have been arrogant enough to say, does he speak to you guys? Well, now Jesus went on to tell the the apostles of his ultimate sacrifice. And since Peter hears from heaven, he obviously has the right to speak out and defend Christ, right? I'm the man. Peter says to himself, I'm just going to take the Lord aside and correct him. (laughs) Peter thought that he should be hearing another compliment from the Lord. And, you know, Peter said, you know, I hear from heaven too, so our Lord shouldn't be saying those things. 
And in verse 22, it says, Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it for you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Does he do this speaking up in defense against Jesus' thoughts that he's going to be arrested? Not quite. I think, I was going to title this message this, From the Penthouse to the Outhouse. (laughs) You know, all of a sudden he's up here, and in a matter of seconds, soup. Jesus turns and says, but turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So I want to just do a real quick recap so far. And last time I preached, I told you I love hockey. I'm really love baseball. Strange might seem more than hockey. And so I'm going to use baseball as a metaphor. You know, baseball games, most of you have seen the Rays gone there. I love going to baseball games. It's a it's a great game. You know, the the excitement is sudden. You know, even from when you buy a hot dog, which I think tastes better at a baseball park, even after you the price of that hot dog kind of stops your heart. <laughs> and they don't take cash, you got to give them a card. There's probably no other sport in America that captures the American culture. And, and you know, one of the things that I like about baseball is I like the pitchers. You've got to love them, especially when you have a pitcher who's in the middle of a no-hitter. Now, he successfully tossed, tossed the pitch in such a way that every batter at the plate has been unsuccessful in making either contact with the ball or making it safely to base after contact. You know, in our lives, there is a distinct possibility that we too might be swinging and missing. Not bad at missing the ball, but our lives missing eternity. Jesus spoke at least on three different occasions about his death. And what I say is Jesus has given us the three strikes. Three opportunities to see and to understand his true purpose, why he came, and what he hoped to accomplish. So the first part of my metaphor is Jesus is on the mound. He's the pitcher. And we see this in Luke 18 to 21. I think what's important in those passages there is a note about prayer. Because what was Jesus doing? He was praying, right? Prayer is important before momentous events or occasions. Prayer is important for the insight of others. And prayer is also important for our strength to persevere. So in my illustration, Jesus is on the mound. He's ready to throw a pitch that he hopes we're going to hit. What baseball pitcher would do that? They'd be traded. They'd be going back to Durham or even lower. You know? Jesus asks, who am I really? And when these words were written, most people believed that the time of the prophets had ended. Uh, Identification as a prophet was really a radical kind of out there idea. You know, in today's world, it seems that the popular belief of someone sometimes appears, when someone says something wrong, it sometimes appears to be a correct belief. Have you ever seen that? You know, here's what I say. 
Jesus is more than the greatest of men. We talked this morning, if you read other religions, uh, Islam, for example, says Jesus was a good man or he's a great prophet. No. You know, that might be a popular opinion of some people, but it's not correct. Jesus is far more than John the Baptist was. He was far more than Elijah. He was far more than any prophet of the old, as radical as that might have been for the time. You see, what is popular then is also popular in today's world. You know, if, if you took a survey of people, you just walked through the Tyrone Mall, and you ask, what do you, who, who is Jesus? I would think the top four answers you'd get is he was a great guy, a great teacher. He revealed a lot of important things. And we can study a lot by studying, we can learn a lot by studying about the life of Jesus. Here's what I think. A false belief then or now is still a false belief. You see, the disciples believed differently. They did identify Jesus as the Messiah. However, they had an incorrect idea of his purpose. Why do you think he said, don't tell anybody? Well, I believe it's because they were seeing Jesus as going to be this... He knew that the people around, and maybe some of his disciples thought that he was going to be this political leader. He was going to overthrow the Roman government. He was going to set up a new nation. And Jesus didn't want to feed into that. So they had this... uh, They had an incorrect idea of Jesus' purpose, but they also had an incorrect idea of their future. You know what their big problem was? Their problem was incomplete knowledge. An incomplete knowledge of Christ, I believe, is an instrument of the devil. In Matthew 16, 23, Jesus turns to, says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in the mind the things of God, but the things of men. You know, incomplete knowledge only gives us part of the message. Luke 9.21, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell anybody. You know, it's necessary, and I think this is something we don't talk enough about. It's necessary to proclaim Jesus in light of his death and resurrection. Sometimes we talk about one and not the other. Luke 9.22 says, says, I believe means this, when Jesus speaks of his death, he's also speaking of his resurrection. Let's get back to the game. Jesus throws the pitch. In Luke 9.20, it's very simply, who do you say I am? And the answer is pretty forceful. They say, you are Christ the Lord, Christ of God. The answer is profound because they say, you, Jesus, you are the Christ, the anointed one of God. They tell him, you have a deliberate mission from God. You're qualified for the mission by God. You know what that answer is? It's personal. And isn't that how our relationship with God should be? It's personal. My relationship with God might be different than yours or Alex's or the pastor, but it's personal to me. You know, there are are scholars who have read the Bible many more times than I have. But if they don't have a personal relationship 
with the author of this book. Then it's like reading a novel. You've got a little history in here. You've got some poems in here. You've got some uh, legal stuff in here. But it's all about the relationship. It's personal. And I believe that our response to Christ must be personal. I can't depend on Cindy for my salvation. I can only trust in God and submit to Him. I don't. I love the pastor. God, I love that man. <laughs> but you know what? He can't talk me into heaven. He can't pray me into heaven. I've got to do that. I've got to accept that Christ is my Savior. You know, this saying, I'm sure you heard it before, a lot of people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches. The difference between here and here. A lot of people have head knowledge. They don't have the heart. And what's even sadder is sometimes people have the heart. They have the want to, but they don't have to do it. What good is us to have all this knowledge and personal relationship with Jesus Christ and not share that with someone? It's like putting that candle underneath the bushel basket. What purpose does that serve? We should be aggressive and courageous and bold in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. So our response to Christ must be personal. I believe that the only way we can attain salvation is personally. We can't receive salvation on the coattails of anyone else. You know, you might have thought Billy Graham or David Jeremiah or Charles Stanley or any of these guys were great preachers and you're going to follow them. You can, you can, they're not going to get you to heaven. You've got to do it yourself. So we're back to the game. Jesus is on the mound. He throws the pitch. And he's looking. He knows that the batter's going to hit the ball. Why? Because Jesus is looking for those who are going to follow him. But you know, there is a cost of discipleship. First thing is we have to deny self. You know, there's always a tendency, I don't know about you, but me, uh, to indulge myself. I've got this really, I have one like major vice. <laughs> I'm going to admit it. I love watches. I, Cindy got me a new watch. You know, I only have like 25 of them, so I needed a new one for Christmas. So she got me a new Christmas watch. <laughs> you know, I, that's how I indulge myself. If I'm feeling bad, I'm on the internet. Boom, boom, boom. Hey, cool watches, blah, 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 blah. And it comes two days later from Amazon Prime. <laughs> and, you know, I, I indulge myself. I'm always looking for the best deal at the lowest cost. Let me tell you, if you can get a Rolex for $29.95 from China... That's called a Fulex and not a Rolex. <laughs> and it's guaranteed to be right twice a day. <laughs> that wasn't anywhere in my notes. I, <laughs> I've lost myself here. <laughs> okay. In further verses, and we're going to hear more about this next week, Jesus tells us to carry the cross. And why was that important? The Romans and the Jews and everyone else, they saw the cross as the most violent form of execution. So carrying your cross 
through the city before they get crucified as Christ did, it was a symbolic statement. What it was doing was reinforcing that the empire was right in its punishment. And that the empire was right and the individual was wrong. You know, what we're being asked to do is declare that we were wrong and that Jesus was right. We're to follow the Lord. You see, the consequence of not following Christ is a loss. To forfeit yourself is to lose what is greatest. What's the greatest gift we could possibly have gotten? Christ taking on human form and deity, dying on the cross, rising again so that we could experience eternity with him in heaven. You know, we, mankind, the human nature, I believe sometimes we want what we can't attain. I would love to get down to 180 pounds again. Ain't happening. Just ain't happening. I can't do it. I, no matter, I try, can't do it. It's, it's out of the, Never going to have that boyish figure again. <laughs> Deal with it, Fred. I, I do. <laughs> Don't laugh at me, Richard. <laughs> Stop pot calling the kettle black there, bro. <laughs> I'm only kidding. I love you. Um, did I tell you all I love you and I like you too? <laughs> That's important to know. <laughs> you know, sometimes we strive for what we can't uh, have that causes us to lose what's so important. You know, we... Personally, I don't want to be measured by my convictions. I want to be measured by my accomplishments. Yeah, I don't know about my failures. Those aren't so good. Let me tell you what a good boy I am, kind of like Peter. You know, we, we lose what we settle for, when what we want rather than what we can have. That's important right there. Sometimes... What we want. You know, my little old Irish grandmother used to have a a saying she always said to us, if you want to make God laugh, tell him you have a plan. <laughs> you know, because sometimes I want things that in my limited, finite mind, I think is good for me when I don't take time to go to the Lord and seek His will for me. And that's tough, you know. We're guys. I'm a guy. I'm an alpha male kind of guy, you know. Hunter-gatherer, bring food home for Cindy. <laughs> you know, we, we need to remember that through all of this, Christ asks a very simple question. Who do you say I am? I want you to think about that this week, if you would. It's a challenge. Who do you say Christ is? You probably there's 60 people in here, maybe using pastor math, which is 1.5 per seat. <laughs> but uh, you know, you have that many different perspectives on who we say Christ is. Peter very clearly says it. 
He's Christ, the Son of the living God. He's our Messiah. And those are great terms. The school book definition. But what's it really mean to you? Can you are, if you saw me on the street and you didn't know I was a Christ follower and you wanted to share Christ with me, how would you tell me about Christ? What does He mean? Who do we say He is? And we should have that as Christ followers right at the tip of our tongue. That should be, you want, let me tell you about my Jesus. Here's what I was before and this is what I'm now. Because of Him. Not because of me. But because of him. Marty, if you and the worship team would come up, I, I want to close with just a couple of thoughts. There are probably two good statements that I of things that I I've I've learned in my sixty five years. And they're very simple. The first one is there is a God. The second one, I'm not him. You know, and if if he is God, if he is my God, then we need to let him rule, not me, no one else, no one else. We should let him rule in our lives, be completely focused on him. This morning, I don't know where you stand with the Lord. And my prayer is that if you don't know the Lord, this will be the time to think about it seriously. We're not we're not told we have another breath. You know, God forbid I could stroke out right now. And Cindy would be sad and some of you would be running for a defibrillator and things, but you know, at the end of the day, I know where I'm going. I know that I know that I know. If you can't say that to yourself right now that if for some reason you just you're gone. Do you know where you're going? If you don't, I just want to share a very simple prayer. And we teach it to kids, the ABCs. You admit, you believe, you confess. What do we admit? We admit that we're sinners. God, I'm a sinner. B, what do we believe? We believe that Jesus Christ came to earth, he's king of kings, lord of lords, he suffered, died, and buried, and rose again for me. Now here's the hard part. Kids get this, but adults don't. It's called confess. Well, I can't remember, I'm 65 years old, I can't remember everything I did wrong. Don't worry about it, God knows. You can't hide from him, just be sincere, contrite in your heart. I'm sorry for what I have done against you. I am sorry for offending you. Lord, help me not to do it again. Now, based on the authority of Scripture, if you say a prayer like that, angels in heaven are dancing right now because another born-again believer is there. You know, it's, so I had a friend of mine say one time, he said, Fred, you believe in... It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's too simple. No, it's not simple. But you know why? Christ had to die for me. And there was nothing simple about that death. There's nothing cheap or easy about our our salvation. And as I said earlier, it's all relational. So this morning, if if you've said that prayer, please tell the pastor or the deacons or anybody, just share the good news. That'd be great.
But also, that's a little tool you can use to, if you meet someone that doesn't know the Lord, the ABCs. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, just thank you so much for this time. Lord, just uh, use us as part of your plan. Lord, let us submit. Let us be able to say readily who you are. You are God, the King of kings, the ruler of our lives, our salvation. You are the Alpha and the Omega. Lord, watch over us this week as we go about. And we pray this in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Faith Fellowship St. Pete in St. Petersburg, Florida. More information about Faith Fellowship can be found at faithfellowshipstpete.org.